Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. This is Matt Chatham, your host, joined by Brady Quinn. The first time, Brady, you and I have talked NFL football in a while. We've been doing the college football show throughout the season, but it's good to get you on the other side. How's it going, buddy? It's going well. It's good to be back to doing the NFL. I got I to tell you, Matt, it's a little bit easier covering the NFL just because of all the exposure that it has and obviously less teams in comparison to college football. That is a much more draining um, <laughs> you know, deal on your time and just overall energy, too. You're a thousand percent right. I have the exact same experience when I'm when I'm calling college games like I know you do and you you yourself call NFL games now, but I just do that in the preseason and then once we transition into college, I find myself, you know, talking more in generalities because you know a handful of players on each side, but you sit down and watch an NFL game and you know virtually every guy out there. You at least know a little more about him. You can sort of get a little more into his history, his past, uh, the what he does, you know, as far as sort of move preferences and things like that college it always feels like you're just barely scratching the surface these are 18 and 19 year old kids they might be different tomorrow than they are today but uh, that's always what's fun with it so have you enjoyed sort of that moving from calling one game to the other yeah I've actually enjoyed it a lot I mean mostly because of the style of play of the NFL I mean it truly Uh, is a different game Um, there's obviously some subtle differences in the rules uh, but beyond that I just think the style of play, uh, it's a little bit more detailed. I mean, look, this is its what these guys' jobs are now. It's their career. So they have more time to devote to it. The schemes are more complicated. Um, and, and obviously the play is that much better, uh, you know, in comparison to the college football level because of how much these guys are able to work on their craft and perfect their craft. So those are the sorts of things that I get really excited about watching it because you're talking about the best football players in the world are playing in front of your eyes. And I don't, I don't want right. that to take anything away from the college kids. I think that's a whole different atmosphere, and it's fun with the energy that they bring. But there's obviously no higher level than the NFL. Well, you as a former player myself, we, we, we know this week well. We're, we're now into the Christmas season. And, and for folks out there that follow the game closely, and, and I'm sure – or wonder what the hell are y'all doing <laughs> because it's Christmas season. I mean, this is a national holiday. There's, there's nothing bigger in, in America going on right now than, than sort of this build up to Christmas. Uh, well, either from a religious standpoint for a lot of people or just simply the secular version of it, but things move towards December 25th this year. It's actually on a Friday. Uh, can you just sort of relate some of your experiences from, from being a player and having to sort of manage the difficulty of a family or friends or whatever it is you were going to do for Christmas and still prepare for a very important late season game. And that's one of the hardest things that I think always gets overlooked. Uh, And it's not just during Christmas time. It's for any player that gets drafted or ends up playing kind of in his hometown is he's constantly being bombarded by people Uh. for tickets, by people want to come up around the game time. And then you fast forward to the end of the season, like Christmas, well, obviously, there's a lot of people who are off work or they're traveling or they're back home for the holidays. So that number only increases and you only get more requests. And then on top of it, you know, Matt, I'm sure you're trying to get, you know, gifts for the kids or gifts for your wife. And, and I'm right. the same boat trying to get gifts for my wife. And you're trying to find time outside of your profession, which is incredibly difficult because at this point in the season for a quarterback, 
you have so much film to watch. There's so many things that you have to get under your belt so you can feel confident as you prepare for your game. So trying to balance the two is incredibly difficult. I mean, I always felt like you, know, you kind of take a physical toll throughout the season. But at this point in the season, even for veteran players, it's the most mentally draining because outside your life outside of football is so mentally draining as well uh, during the during the holiday season. And, and then you, you lump in something, for example, you know, I, I have a foundation uh, called Third and Goal Veterans Home Aid, and we make homes yes. handicap accessible for wounded veterans. So I'd be doing projects like that around this Christmas time. And some of it was more in regards to what we do with home repairs, things like that. Like this particular, um, this particular year, we're actually helping a veteran with his roof, who's had some roofing issues and insulation issues. Uh, obviously lives in Northern Indiana. So he's having some issues of being able to keep his house warm during this cold time of right. year. So we're helping him out with that. And then obviously providing gifts to, to veterans who are in need, uh, need a little help, especially on this time of the year. Also some, you know, soldiers, families who, who have a loved one that's serving overseas and, and maybe need a little bit of help with some gift giving, things like that. So, that's kind of what, you know, I think a lot of players do during this time of year. They get involved with their foundations and trying to give back to their community. And that's another piece that makes me even more inundated um, and really, uh, you know, where time is scarce. Yeah, and, and the the difficult part is you sort of alluded to it as a as a quarterback. Uh, my my view is, is or my perspective is a little different because as a linebacker, we're, we're studying different things. We're often studying you, quite frankly, the quarterback position. Uh but we, I've always been in a family first kind of environment, both with the Jets and Patriots. So they certainly gave you the grace you needed to get the things done. Uh, you know, the day of, uh, obviously, the day of Christmas, obviously, you're not doing anything. Uh, the day prior is usually maybe a half day. Uh, but what this means, uh, and it, you know, it obviously depends upon when this thing hits. If December 25th happens to hit on a Tuesday, that's entirely different than if it happened to be on a Saturday. They just try to work around it. They still got to get your work in. So the thing that I always had high anxiety about, and I, I don't think this is exclusive to me. This is you could probably talk to any any number of hundreds of Patriots who've come through that door uh, because of the way Coach Belichick does things with uh, really, really knowing your opponent. Uh, you're going to get quizzed, and he's big on these. I don't know if Josh McDaniels did it because you had him for a coach, did you not? The the quiz thing. Oh, dude, I had every one of them. I had <laughs> Bill O'Brien, so of course they all. Oh, Billy O'Brien. Yeah. So anyway, then the morning after Christmas was always sort of my high anxiety because you know that hey, go eat, uh, go hang out with your family, do everything that's that's completely. You know, just put football aside for 24 hours football doesn't exist your family's first and, and faith or whatever it is you're diving into on that day uh but the next day your vacation's over <laughs> so we were going to get peppered with okay the, the the swing tackle is who and their their third favorite run scheme is what and oh, wait a minute now when they're in four wide receiver sets with this personnel group uh, and they change out the back. What's their favorite protection? Like that kind of stuff where, yes, I was enjoying Christmas, of course, but usually once the meal was ended, maybe family clears out, friends. Uh, that evening was probably one of my hardest studied nights of the year because it's you're, you're not just remembering early stuff in the week. You just don't want to be that guy on the morning after that Bill quizzes and realizes he ain't got it. And <laughs> we're going to go play a game days later. Yeah, no, that's, that was the worst feeling. I mean, look, I had it with Charlie Weiss even when I was in college, you know, around I'm the sure. time you're preparing for your bowl game prep and all that. Then I had it with Romeo Cronell 
Then I had it yeah. with Eric Mancini. Oh, yeah. Then I had Josh McDaniels. I mean, back to Roman. <laughs> you had them all. You had them all. Everyone yeah. Billy O. So it, it was uh, it was a constant. I don't want to say walking on eggshells, but I mean, for quarterbacks, you're usually pretty prepared. You're usually on top of all that sort of stuff, and, and you pay attention, take notes of meetings. I can only imagine what it was like for you know some of the defensive linemen, in particular a guy like Sean Rogers, uh, when we had Eric Mangini as our coach, and he was there. He could care less about what anyone else was doing <laughs> right, right. besides his job going into it. And, uh, when, and whenever Eric would call on Sean, who kind of sat in the back of the meeting room and all that, it took up about right. three seats. He would just kind of start laughing and be like, got nothing for you, boss. <laughs> we had that with Ty Law. Ty's the best. Ty's a comedian and, and Ty, you know, I, I got the receiver. <laughs> you know, he'd ask him, you know, yeah. what he's like, I got my guy. I got my guy. Just, just <laughs> he, whoever comes out to my side, I got him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I loved it, though. It was, that was always good comedy. All right, here. Well, let's sort of transition into this week. We got a few big things going on, obviously, with two weeks left of the season. There's a lot of very important sort of playoff seating stuff that has to shake out. We'll get to that here in a second. First and foremost, because we're sort of transitioning here into a huge holiday and uh, people in the media business tend to still work during this day, but uh, they also plan the, the, the opening of movies, uh, which is kind of a common thing. My son and I, I think we're going to try to get to Star Wars here, uh, obviously not the day of, but maybe the day after. Or so uh, I guess, well, probably not Sunday, but I'm going to try to fit that in. So usually doing a movie of some sort during this little time off that they have, it's almost, it's almost like a Chatham family tradition. Um, now that said, this we're in a weird year here, Brady, where uh, there's a pretty dark and heavy topic that decided to launch itself on Christmas. I think in in hopes that they draw a big audience by you know sort of the build up to that time and and maybe a dedicated potential audience and people being home and around. So concussion movie has come out. This Will Smith movie that's sort of. Uh, a, a clearly a dramatization of, of the League of Denial uh, frontline uh, column and, and special that showed years ago. Uh, now sort of putting that whole issue of CT on the front burner. Uh, I personally got to see it in, in one of these private screens for, for former players for an NFLPA chapter up here uh, in New England. Um, I'm curious. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've not yet seen the film, but uh, this is a question we, we try to talk to a lot of players about. Uh, what are your feelings on it, regardless of you know liking it or not, just simple interest in, in wanting to see the thing? I mean, I definitely have an interest in wanting to see it, although I, I do have my reservations. I feel like sometimes right. um, being told the reality of an injury or someone telling you, you know, maybe what your prognosis is for the future, uh, it, it's scary. I mean, and, and I just read someone's tweet that came out. It was actually from time.com uh, today. And they mm -hmm. talked about how, based on Bennett Omalu's research, he said 90% of NFL players are going to have some sort of brain disease. And it's, it's scary to think about that as uh, being the, the future for your life. At some point, you, you have to deal with some of the adverse effects of, of your playing days and playing in the NFL. And, and I think having to face that reality before those days have necessarily come, uh, I don't know if it's something that I want to you know, do. Uh, and and right. I don't know if you have reservations about it, but I, I think maybe I do for that reason because I feel like if, if I'm mentally sound, I, I, try, I try to just, you know, still feel uh, mentally as, as confident and as invincible as I once did when I was playing, then and maybe I'll, I'll be able to, you know, I don't, I don't know, I guess – 
a lot of that placebo effect can kind of take its course, right? Where I'll, I'll be <laughs> right, mind right. over matter, and I, I won't face, you know, whatever consequences or won't mentally allow myself to go there. Maybe that's part of it as well. Yeah, I, I think there there's certainly that element to the film uh, that that will hit guys where it's, you know, I don't know if you ever seen like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or maybe more of a Back to the Future kind of thing where it's like, dude, you, do you really want to know your future? And if you, you know, almost like the butterfly effect, like if if I knew this was how it was going to be and this one little thing changed, is ignorance bliss? Like, is it just an OK thing to say, you know what, I assume it's not going to be great. I don't need to see every gory detail it's going to go a certain way. Right. But I also think there's an element to this uh, that to be honest in going to watch this thing, you have to understand you're not watching a documentary. Right. So I I think for every player out there, I personally would encourage them to see it, but also to read everything that there is possible going in. So you understand that you're seeing a nice, neat package product to help you sort of sort through the emotional aspect. It's not a hardcore medical, you know, diving into the tau protein stuff and CTE and the, the, you know, all of the, the linkage issues and questions. It keeps it pretty cut and dry. It's basically have CTE, have concussion, will have future problems. It keeps it pretty simple and linear. And I know life is not as cut and dry to that. One of the big questions that, that came up in watching it for me, uh, and it was moving, trust me, I'm, I'm holding a, a bag of popcorn or a box of popcorn that I that I probably finished off the first 10 or 15 minutes in the film. And uh, I'm, I'm writing about this on the website here. It'll be up later in the week. But uh, one of the things that, that I, I didn't realize is I'm holding sort of this empty box. By the end of the movie, I had crushed it and it was completely sweat soaked. Like I was gripping this thing and it's tense. So all I'm simply saying is as an illustration is as a player, maybe more so than someone who, who didn't play, you'll, I think it'll grab you uh, because the gory details are there and they're real. Uh, and I guess the, the biggest the biggest sort of parallel I think I could draw and that I hope that the film has this effect uh, it reminded me a lot of the Ray Rice stuff and, and uh, even even later on with the Greg Hardy stuff where we all know the legal denial thing. We all know that the NFL had to pay the billion bucks. Uh, we all know, you know, that there's concussion lawsuits and we read about them and we've been inundated with that stuff for years. There hasn't really been an illustration. Uh, and I think the illustration is extremely powerful. And, and I'm just beyond just what us, how us players are going to react, the formers and the currents. I'm curious to see how the rest of America, you know, I guess that's part of that's contingent on how many people actually see it, but how they react, because it'll be the first time where they get a visualization of the struggle and not so much from the player aspect. I think they'll, there'll be plenty of people to just say, hey, you guys are warriors, tough guys, couple, couple guys got sick. Oh, well, but the illustration of the dirtiness from the NFL side, the illustration of the corruption is, is pretty strong in the movie. And some of those people, one, Dr. Pellman was my doctor with the Jets. Uh, one of those guys, Roger Goodell, comes off extremely bad in the movie. So it'll be interesting to see how the world responds to that. And if they don't, and maybe it's just a piece of pop culture and we all move on and go on with our lives. But we will see. Yeah, you know, it's funny it seems like the NFL can't lose at this point, Matt. I mean, every single thing that you thought would have created more negative publicity and taken away from the viewership or, uh, I don't know, the stardom of some players, et cetera, around right. the NFL, based on how they conducted themselves off the field, it's only attracted more viewers. It's only allowed the ratings to be higher. <laughs> I was literally right. reading the Wall Street yesterday and basically coming to the conclusion that 
And it was talking about how NBA ratings are going down for ESPN and TNT. And it's not just a result of people cable cutting. It's not, it's not what it's about. It's about the fact that the NFL has become a year-round sport because their storylines are bigger and better and everyone wants to read about it and follow about it because it's just that much more fascinating, even in comparison to a league where, you know, Stephen Curry's played arguably some of the greatest basketball anyone's ever seen. And even right. with that being the case, how great the Golden State Warriors were, the NFL is still beating them. I understand it's the beginning of the regular season for the NBA versus getting close to the end of the regular season for the NFL playoff time. Yeah. But it still has a lot to do with a lot of the drama from Deflategate and now this concussions and the movie about it. And all of that conversation stirs up people wanting to see these hits. They want to see how these players react uh, over yeah. the course of, of a year and the rest of their career. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm, I would call myself a diehard uh, four-sport guy as a kid. Uh, I really had no preference towards football other than that it allowed me to fight a little more, <laughs> it allowed me to do the physical stuff. But that said, I didn't grow up as if football was pre- preferable necessarily. I, you know, I'm a six, 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 guy. I want to play basketball too. I want to play baseball. I was on a team that very nearly went to the Little League World Series. We lost in the, the last game that we would have then played uh, the team from Taiwan. Uh, so I, I love them all. And, and as I've grown older and, you know, obviously played in the league. So I think that would, that would pull me towards one sport more than the other, but maybe just more now as a casual observer, it's more interesting. And, and, and that's hard to get past. It just really is. It's hard to stay captivated by a long baseball season. It's hard to care that much about the NBA right now, because I know when May rolls around, there's going to be like eight weeks of playoffs where I can get all caught up to speed. And every night, if I want to, it's going to be a long playoff season. So I can, you know, I can get involved then. I don't need to now. Uh, the NFL doesn't do that to you. I think you need to be there every week in September. And it's that ability to sort of captivate people that has really worked. But the one thing I'll say is sort of an aside as we bail out of the topic of the movie. Um, one thing, and I mean, my, my, my views are clear on this, and I don't mean to represent them as if they're yours or anyone else on our website for that matter, but I've obviously been a big advocate for, for Roger Goodell to hopefully lose his job at one point. The one thing that really <laughs> struck me, <laughs> exactly, I'll say that as quietly and calmly as I can, and I can't wait to get the Super Bowl and hopefully pepper him with one of those questions. But anyhow, uh, when, one of the things that, that struck me in this movie uh, and we talked about it quite a bit. A lot of the people we did, there was a panel of former players and the author of the book, uh, the author, the author of the book on this movie, and also the author of the original GQ article that that prompted League of Denial. Uh, talking at length about what it would take uh, to 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 change management and how bizarre this situation is. That uh, almost imagine imagine a situation like like Ray Rice, right, or or even Greg Hardy, or any of these situations. I, I know it sounds a little perverse because it's it's obviously a different situation because someone hit someone, but at least in this situation, you know, people died, uh, you know, people people got sick and and things were withheld and all that kind of stuff. So there's obviously an ugly side to all of this. But can you imagine a situation where the the offending party in say the the, the tobacco company and that example is used pretty heavily in the in the uh, in the movie, uh, because and, and honestly, they end up using the same lit- lit- litigation teams, <laughs> the NFL and some of the some of the, the smoking lobby people. But anyhow, they the idea that can you imagine after the large uh, settlement that the that the uh, that the tobacco industry had that the tobacco industry would then be the people to lead the health effect movement 
uh, towards non-smoking. And that, and that's ostensibly what's being asked of the NFL or expected of the NFL. All these guys who lied, all these guys who did phony research, all these guys who tried to, to sort of suppress Bennett Amalo, the, the, the doctor in this, this movie that's sort of the central figure, Will Smith's character, those same people that committed those things that caused the billion-dollar thing or by and large, other than a, a person or two, are the same people who are now are going to lead the, the the charge for research. <laughs> it, it just say it's asinine. I think of like the Ray Rice or, or Hardy situation. It's like after they've done their acts, now we get to hear the litany of things that they've done good in their lives and why they're you know now going to lead the charge for domestic violence. It just it just seems weird and a little bit perverted yeah. that okay we we know that that happened. Why are they still there? (laughs) That kind of thing. And and it's obviously not going to be answered, but you know what I mean? Well, Matt, you've probably been to Foxwoods, right? The casino up there? Oh, have I been to Foxwoods? (laughs) Do I live there? (laughs) The the reason I bring it up is because a lot of these casinos, they're the ones who actually put up those billboard signs or the advertisements or the radio ads you hear where they talk about gambling problems. They're the ones who actually pay for all that. (laughs) And, and, and so, so I, that always strikes me as, as kind of ironic, the fact that they're the ones who are trying to suck you to get you there, but they're also the ones trying to help you out if you end up having a quote-unquote problem. Right, right. I'm gonna, Yeah, I, y- 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 the guy that punches his spouse also gets to drive her to therapy <laughs> you know, and to treatment. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, it's essentially the same thing. Like, it's, how can you be the offender and the healer? It just that doesn't that doesn't make sense, but uh, that is the situation we're in. So, all right, I'm going to move on to a little more straight football here. We need to do it uh, before we get into the games themselves. This is also a week, a unique week in the NFL, where the Pro Bowl balloting is announced. Now, as a player, uh, for fans out there, you're obviously a component of the vote now more so than when I was younger in the league, but that obviously changed over the years. These days, there's a weighted fan vote. Uh, a portion of it's the players, a portion of it's the coaches in front office, I even believe. But um, one of the things that, that always would happen with us is post-practice around this time, because it was always basically around this Christmas week, we would get an announcement out on the field in post-practice who had who'd been voted in. And, you know, I was fortunate on the teams I played on. We played on a lot of good teams. So usually there were years where, you know, anywhere between maybe five to some years, 10 or more guys would would make it. But it was this really cool moment where, you know, and you know how hardcore Coach Belichick is, even just by public perception. The guy is very straightforward. The only thing that really matters is team. He doesn't really talk about individual awards at any time. But we always have this pretty solemn moment after that particular, usually Wednesday, Thursday practice, whenever it was around this time. And he pulls everyone together and he says, hey, everyone in here. Uh, I just want to acknowledge some individuals who had a nice season. You guys all know it, and they've been acknowledged by the league. Tom, uh, Matthew, uh, Matt, uh, Teddy, uh, Adam. We've all been nominated to Pro Bowl. Congratulations, guys. Awesome year. And everyone. And, and honestly, it was the most rote, like, flatline uh, way to say it. But you just that he always made a point to show respect to those guys, and it put a little juice in the team. I'm not gonna lie, because we were always so team, 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 team. You know, you never talked about an award, you never really talk about stats or anything like that. But it was that one moment of acknowledgement, and as we would pile back into the locker room, 
uh, you know, jump back in our cars and drive back to the drive back into the locker room to break down the film. It, it's when the buzz would start. Guys talking amongst each other. There's always that one or two teammates that maybe didn't make it that you thought should have, or maybe that one surprise guy on the team who did make it, who you never thought they'd actually vote in, but that you for, had thought for years deserved it. Teddy Bruschi was a great example. Teddy had tons of good seasons where he never got through, in part because Zach Thomas was so good, and Zach would always finish one, and Teddy would always finish two. We knew that backstory for years years and that one time when teddy first broke through the the, the and and got in as he long deserved to be the place exploded and, and it really i think gave us juice even going to that weekend any any experiences you've had with sort of the the pro bowl voting as a player and sort of how it reverberates through the team yeah i mean you know when i was in cleveland we had josh because our return man and uh yeah people don't understand the story of josh cribs the way he came through kind of kent state Obviously, you know, got got there the long and hard way to earn himself a spot. And because we're the Cleveland Browns, you know, you almost didn't have that cachet or that name or that brand of, of greatness right. behind you. So you kind of didn't get the benefit of the doubt a lot of times, and Josh didn't. And I think he was one of the best return men I've ever seen in, in, in the league, in NFL history. And it wasn't that he was overly fast. It wasn't that he was anything other than that, but he ran hard. He would run through tackles. He would spin. He would take pops. I mean, he would get hit on returns where you were like, there's no way he's going to get up from that. And every time he got up off the field, and then he'd do something even more spectacular the next time he got a chance. So we did everything we could for voting for Josh to try to get him in. I mean, this sounds completely messed up, but what we used to do is, you know, you you always do Pro Bowl voting for the player vote. We would get all get in a room. And we would say, all right, who's the worst return man? And we would have our entire team vote for the least likely guy. So then that would nullify and take away some of that vote. And some people, because you're not technically supposed to vote for your own player, if I'm not mistaken, right? Right. Um, You have to vote vote for someone else. So we would vote for the worst possible guy on the list of the position. So then it would take away from any, like the other guy besides Josh that was going to be getting those votes. Just so we could give him an opportunity uh, to get into the Pro Bowl. So when he did it, we were just extremely elated as a team uh, because he had put so much hard work and, and effort into making that happen for a number of years. Uh, but it, it was always interesting, man. I mean, you know, because I was a part of teams who were, who were bad, and I've been a part of a couple of decent teams. And, you know, that Pro Bowl didn't matter as much when, when your team was kind of biting for the playoffs or still in it. Uh, but right. when you're on a bad team, it was at, like, that point when – once the Pro Bowl uh, voting was announced and you saw which guys made it in, which guys didn't, at that point then you saw if guys were really about playing the game of football the rest of the season or if they had already packed it in. Um, sure. And, sure. and at that point, you know, it, it was kind of easy to, you know, see which guys were in it for the right reason and which guys were purely in it for themselves. Uh, so I, I kind of always found that interesting if we were having a bad season. I always mm. try to watch which guys I thought were going to pack it in and which guys would continue to play hard. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. And and I, you touched on. I mean, you brought up Josh Cribb, so I can I can double down, triple down, quadruple down on your statements. And he's a guy that I played against. He's a guy I've had to tackle. He's a guy that 
I'll tell you what's rare about Josh. I would say, you know, there's a there's a long list of guys, at least in the area that I played, that were some of the best special teams players. Uh, Kasim Osgood uh, is a coverage guy. Uh, Larry Izzo, obviously my teammate, and he's a stud, but usually each team would have their guy that would get the votes, and it was Larry. And Larry Larry is right up there. Larry is, is one of the really good special teams players of this generation. Uh, but I would also go through from the returner list, you know, guys like Devin Hester, obviously, Dante Hall before him. Uh, and then later on, as you mentioned, Josh Cribbs. And the one reason Josh Cribbs is unique to really uh, all of these guys, uh, David Tyree is another great coverage guy. Uh, but the reason uh, Josh Cribbs sits in a little different place than really any of them is because he could be voted in as the coverage guy as opposed to just the returner. He was just as good a kickoff coverage player. Uh, a gunner, things like that, then then as, just as he was the guy that would catch the ball. You usually don't see that. You know, Devin Hester didn't return kicks, but then also go down and make the tackle. You know, he, Dante Hall wasn't doing that. Josh was as unique a player in that regard because he was a little bit bigger. He was pretty strong, somewhat fast, as you mentioned, but his instincts were incredible. But he had a, enough of a dual skill set that he could do both sides, and you almost never see that. Never, never, never see that. So that's why I kind of hold him in his own little special place. Josh was was definitely a special player. Now, looking at the guys that came out of, of this one, I've just got one in mind, and I know we have a New England audience, so I'll, I'll kind of hit on it. Any one guy that got in that you were, A, surprised about, and then maybe a second player that didn't get in that you were surprised weren't, weren't voted in, Brady? Yeah, I've got two. Um, they're both on the offensive line. Uh, two guys oh, that wow. I are surprised they got in on is going to be Joe Staley at tackle and Jason Peters. Look, I understand Jason Peters has had a tremendous career, but that offensive line for the Philadelphia Eagles has struggled at right. times this season, right. and he's been a part of that. Um, I've, I've seen him numerous times on film watching them where he's missed some things inside and some blocks or gotten beat inside and, and what have you. So, I, I look, he's a great player. I love him as a left tackle, but I don't think he's had a Pro Bowl year, not in comparison to someone like Joe Thomas, who when I did their game however many weeks ago, he's been to eight Pro Bowls. I, I watched the film on him, and I'm like, this guy is as good as he's ever been at this point in time in his career. And you compare him to example for a Joe Staley, who I mentioned, who made a move from, move from right tackle to left tackle. I, I watched the Chicago Bears tear him up. I mean, he struggled getting off the football. He lost two sacks the game before. Uh, the game I was actually calling for them, like I was, I'm, I was very surprised that Joe Staley made it in uh, again over a guy like Joe Thomas, who I feel like even though the Browns haven't had a great season, Joe's had a good season. Alex Mack made it in as a center. Joe Thomas should be right there next to him. Uh, it's a little bit surprising. I mean, when you look at the breakdown for the Pro Bowl, Whitworth is the only guy who made it in that first team uh, or Pro Bowl, the first you know battle Pro Bowl in the AFC. I, I feel like they're shortchanging Joe. Hmm. All right. That's a good list. And those are a couple names that I hadn't thought of. Actually, though, when you did mention Jason Peters and made it, I had to go scroll back down my list and go, wait a minute, did he? <laughs> because it kind of struck my ear that way. And trust me, we all know this. Uh, there's there's years where the way the way Pro Bowl voting always worked, uh, at least in my view, or just sort of general observation is you really have to break the ice. You have to get through. And there's sometimes it takes till the you, you may have had a Pro Bowl quality season once, maybe even twice and not gotten in. It's just once the dam breaks, then you're like a lifer unless you just really sucked it up. I mean, it really happens that way. London Fletcher was always a guy who would, had put together season after season after season, was always so close and never got through. And I want to say he got one. 
but it's just that idea that, and I'm not using this as an example as someone who was voted when he didn't deserve it, but it, once you've broken through, I think the Jason Peters effect is, as you mentioned, kind of starts to happen where you know the name, you haven't really watched him that much. You played against him maybe two or three times in your life. You remember he was a badass that time. You see him on the list, you check his box, <laughs> you know, and, and that happens all the time because quite frankly, players aren't able to evaluate you know all 32 teams you know the teams you played maybe you did play Jason Peters this year and like you said he's our, he's already played in 14 games or maybe less than that because he's missed some time with injury uh and he might have had two or three games and good really good games and but maybe he had five or six or seven or eight or whatever bad ones and if you're the one that played against him and the one where he kicked ass and you've played every other tackle in the league you said on that day it was better than all the other guys I faced, you know, and I think sometimes some of that bias will be built in and you might, you know, make a bad vote. But uh, yeah. And the other thing is, I think when media voting comes into play or even fan voting, what are you basing it off of headlines? I mean, people aren't studying film. So I always thought that the Pro Bowl voting was always kind of a goofy thing. Uh, there's plenty of players that I played with and against that, that, that deserved them that didn't get them and guys that got them that, uh, you know, that name cachet became, sort of the uh the license that got him through and it is what it is i always thought the uh the worst contract uh clause that a guy could have was having a considerable amount of his his compensation tied up in whether or not he made a pro bowl considering how <laughs> how uh how much of a flip of a coin it was and having that uh, consideration in the hands of a bunch of people who are kind of half assing it <laughs> myself included <laughs> it just seemed like god <laughs> you'd hate for five hundred thousand dollars for your family to be tied up in whether or not these guys know you know do it the right way all that kind of thing but uh for me the the two quick names and i, I know i ate up a ch- huge chunk of time there so i'll go fast it was great to see malcolm butler get in as the cornerback you always wonder you know the nfl mvp thing happens and a guy or MVP, but just the guy that has the big moment kind of thing. He got the truck from Tom and Tom got MVP last year. But anyway, the guy has sort of a once in a lifetime moment and you always wonder, are you going to be one of those, you know, Dexter Jackson? I'm trying to think of some other guys in the past who had that big Super Bowl moment and the career hasn't always stayed up at that level for the rest of their career. Uh, Malcolm, they let Darrell Revis go and Malcolm has been a pro bowl starter. He's been exceptional throughout the year and year it, it week after week would sort of pile on top of one another. And they stopped talking about West Alabama. They stopped talking about the fact that he's undrafted. You just say, Hey, he's a damn good corner. That's it. And his name's Malcolm Butler. So that was really great to see. Uh, one of the, the snubs on uh, this is Homerism, but it, it, quite frankly, I think it's a lot like you said, games you saw are the ones where you'd have more of a strong feeling. I, you know, cover all these Patriot games and uh, Dante Hightower is one of the best linebackers in football. I absolutely believe that. I've seen him grow since he was drafted in the first round. Um, and he is not a guy who made every game this year. I think he missed a game or two. Uh, and I think what helped me realize how good he was is is watching the drop off when he wasn't in there. And that's always that's always kind of helpful. But in a game now where I think linebackers are, you know, the guy that gets sacks or gets an interception or something like that will really grab attention. It's a little harder when you're just sort of a tackle accumulator. Uh, and I think he kind of sits in that box, but he's super valuable. He's a guy who probably will break the ice at some point, uh, but uh, didn't this year. And that, that was a little bit of an oversight. But all right, so we're done with Pro Bowl stuff. I'm done with the individual, and we will finish out the show here with a, with a quick highlight on 
a couple of the big games, uh, a game that you wrote on and that actually I wrote on for both Fox and it'll be on later in the week. Football, football is for football. My football is this this Broncos uh, Bengals contest, which is matching two teams that need it really badly. What are some of your uh, things you pick out and are looking for in that game, Brady? Well, really, given the fact that it's going to be both backup quarterbacks playing, uh, Matt, I was kind of curious. So I went back and studied each of their games this past week. And uh, when you looked at when you look at Brock Osweiler, I think the book's out on him. I think teams kind of understand how to, um, you know, basically defend and come away with wins. When, when you look at the first half of the Pittsburgh Steelers game, Osweiler threw three touchdown passes. It looked like he was lighting the world on fire. But when you actually – don't look at the stat line and watch the film. It kind of tells a different story. And, and I wrote about it talking about how, look, this is a guy who was dropping a shotgun snaps that led to a sack. He, he was almost nearly fumbling snaps from under center that ended up being a broken play on one particular scoring drive where he was able to scramble up and get back to the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, the, the one touchdown pass he threw was a completely blown coverage. They were running a double corner cat or double corner blitz in that particular case, usually when you do that, you have to run a, some sort of blitz zone 22. And the safety on that side, Will Allen, got his eyes stuck in the backfield for whatever reason of flashing face. And Emmanuel Sanders was running scot-free down the side of the field. Uh, yeah, just stand there flat-footed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and so that to me, I'm like, how can you anyone on that, you know, at home on their couch, as long as they just were able to pick their head up and see downfield, would have had a chance at at least completing that pass because he was so wide open. <laughs> right, right, um, right. And then you look at you know one of his other touchdowns. He essentially threw a smoke, which is a, a quick wide receiver uh, screen. Not even that. I mean, it's really when you have enough of a cushion with your defensive back, you just throw it out to the wide receiver and let him work the one-on-one matchup. You know, he did that to uh, Demarius Thomas, who had space versus Antoine Blake, and basically bowled over Blake for the touchdown. Uh, so you're sitting there watching it going, I mean, holy cow, man. I mean, that's two examples of – Two easy giving up touchdowns that that's not going to be the case. I mean, the Cincinnati Bengals defense is much better than that. You don't see them blow coverages quite as often. They have they have a much better pass rush than what the Pittsburgh Steelers have shown. And then on the flip side of that, A.J. McCarron, you know, they didn't ask him to do a whole lot in this game. You know, if you look at the first quarter in particular, San Francisco and offensive coordinator Jeep Chris really tried to set the tone and run the football, which wasn't that successful. That's why you had about seven punt exchanges by both teams. Um, right. And and with the 49ers, or excuse me, so uh, let me go back to that. Hugh Jackson, offensive coordinator, uh, as well as Jeep Chris, offensive coordinator for the 49ers, they're both trying to run the ball the entire time. Um, right. neither, neither could really get it going. Gabbert was the one that ended up making the mistakes, I would say. I mean, it really wasn't his fault either. He had a bunch of tip passes, one off of Vance McDonald's that he could have caught that Adam Jones got, and then another one to Vontez Perfect. Both of those interceptions, Matt, they put A.J. McCarron in nice field position, and he really didn't do a whole lot. He made a couple – he made one nice deep pass to A.J. Green, which A.J. Green went up and made a play, but on his, you know, lonely touchdown pass, uh, it was a blown coverage. He was able to find a way of hitting Tyler Cross, Cross up, up the seam. They brought a safety blitz from that side. They had a, a two-by-two set, four vertical uh, routes, and the post-side safety couldn't get there in time uh, because Cross was running, you know, scot-free down the field, and it was only 20 yards – that had just reached the uh, red zone. So that was kind of where McCarron's touchdown came into play, and they kicked some field goals, and that's all they really ended up needing um, after that. So it was, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of tough watching the film, sitting there saying, well, how's this matchup going to look? Because both of these quarterbacks really need to get wins for their teams, so they are, are, in the, are in the position to have a bye. So either Peyton Manning or Andy Dalton 
can hopefully have a better chance of coming back 100% healthy. And I, I just don't think either of these quarterbacks, from what they showed last week, is, is really fit to be able to go in against either of these defenses, considering how good the Denver Broncos defense has been and then how good the Cincinnati Bengals defense has been. So I'll be curious to see early on how these two quarterbacks play and if, if the Brock Oswald and the Broncos can kind of get things going because they've, they've, for the two weeks now, been shut out in the second half of the games. Yeah, it's interesting that you migrated there and went through with your point because I, the way it works for me is I write the Fox column each week and I, I sort of talk to our, my uh, editor there at Fox who sort of talks through which games we want to call the game of the week, what they want to focus upon. Uh, we always kind of brainstorm at the beginning of the week where we want to take this thing. And uh, we that was the game that we were going to do. And, you know, I'm looking at what are we in week 15 now? I've done 14 columns prior to this, 14 other games of the week. Uh, and then I think almost, and not intentionally so, and obviously me being a former defensive player, it's weird that I do this, but I have a habit of, you know, you can't write 3,000 words. You're trying to keep it tight and keep it readable. And you can't evaluate every single aspect of both sides of the ball for both teams. So you kind of try to hammer in on one element that you think might decide the game. Uh, and to be honest, uh, over the course of 14 columns, I'd say the vast majority of them are picking, pitting offensive elements for one team against the offensive element of the other team. So trying to determine which you think is going to work out better. Uh, and this is a game where I looked at both of the offenses in study and said, you know what, I don't think, I don't think the Denver offense wins or loses this for them. I don't think the Bengals offense, as they're, they're now constituted with a question mark with Tyler Eifert, with his concussion stuff, with Dalton down, with an, uh, an inconsistent run game. You know, Gio Bernard and Jeremy Hill are still great players. I just – they don't use them. You know, the, the, the running game has not been sort of the, the front hammer that I thought it would be, at least that it even looked like it might be in September. So three big things that were so important for them now, and A.J. McCarron has just got to come in and sort of drive the bus. I think the fortunes for really both these teams sort of rise and fall on, on the play of their defenses. Now, last week was the worst game of the year for the Denver defense. They looked really bad. They got picked, especially in that second half, 21 points, just picked apart by, by Big Ben. And we know he's got, he's got, he's got amazing options there with, with that trio wide receivers, but it was, it was bad tape. Um, but fortunately, I don't think, obviously AJ McCarron's group is, is, is going to go out there and throw it 45 times. It's just not going to be the same approach. So the, the one element I sort of hammered in on as I'm watching it, guys are jumping off tape. Now I know about Geno Atkins. I've just learned that he had made his pro bowl, which is big news because last year was his first year back from the ACL. I'd watched him on a couple occasions this season and studied him. And I was like, Oh, that's the old Geno. He's, he's killing the pocket. He's penetrating the hell out of the, out of it from both sides of the ball, both sides of the center uh, wins on run wins on pass. Uh, you always hear about JJ Watt. I'm watching Gino. And I'm like, he's, he's pretty close. He's, he's right in that category. And, and the reason I bring him up and then also D'Amato Pecco, who's a vet, you know, the other nose to defensive tackle that plays in their opposite Gino. I think those two really, really matter in this game because Brock Osweiler is so much better when he's got a clean front lawn, I was calling it. So basically his ability to step into passes because he's so long, he's so tall, he's 6'8", he strides really well when he throws it with a great base. When he doesn't, things don't go as well. Now, it's Kubiak's offense, so they move the pocket quite a bit. 
you know, there's a good amount of, of boot action. There's some dash, there's stretch runs, and then the, they pull up the play action off the stretch, all those kinds of things. So much more effective when they've got a little bit of running game. If they get Anderson going or and then the play action works, well, then now Geno Atkins has to honor the run. He's not just blowing into the backfield. Now, Pecco's not doing his little hand fighting and, and Ole and someone and ended up in the backfield and ruining the whole situation. So if you're a fan at home and you're watching this big, huge game, I think one of the things to really sort of spot shadow is the inside line play when when the Bengals are on D and then and Denver's on O. If 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 Osweiler's got all that all got all that free space in front of him that he did in a lot of the game in the Steelers game, at least more so in the first half, got a fighting chance. Uh if not, I, I could actually see this going the Bengals way and we'll see. But uh, one other game I want to hit on before we sort of pull the cord here, really the other biggest game, at least uh, more so in our neighborhood anyway, because the Jets are still alive and kicking and fighting and have a really good chance of making the playoffs now, uh, especially in light of what may go on in that with the Steelers this week, but uh, the Jets play the Patriots and the Patriots are kind of a little more on cruise control here. They only need to get one of these last two to sew up the whole, you know, home field advantage buys and all those kinds of things. Uh, but this one really matters for the Jets. And and Todd Bowles has done a really good job with that crew of, of getting them to buy in because they've had some missed opportunities during the season. You don't get 14 games in and be 9-5 and five and not had some missed opportunities. I certainly think they have. But they've got some elements. Ryan Fitzpatrick has played really well. Uh, oddly enough, they had a lot better run game early in the season with Chris Ivory. Uh, now all of a sudden, Ivory's more rep limited and Bilal Powell gets more carries. Uh, yet, I think overall the offense has still continued to click. So uh, I'm going to really, I'm going to obviously be at that game. Or No, actually, I'm not traveling down in New York this week. I'll be in studio. But uh, be watching that game carefully. Uh, I think it's it'll be really interesting if for some reason – if it's this week's win or, or 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 next week's, the Jets get in the tournament because maybe not so much with how they face the Patriots, but the Jets could be a tough a tough matchup for maybe somebody like Kansas City, potentially the Bengals themselves if they have to play in the wild card round. Uh, they could be a tough out. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, I just called the New York Jets Dallas Cowboys game last week for Westwood One, and yep. You know, watching the film up towards the game, you know, I, I didn't think it would be as competitive as it ended up being. Uh, I thought the Jets could run away with it. Uh, but they had sustained a, a few injuries. Brandon Marshall was kind of in and out uh, throughout the course mm-hmm. of the game. And uh, I, I thought that actually the Dallas Cowboys defensive front was uh, much more disruptive than maybe even Jerry Jones gives them credit. He was actually quoted this week as saying that was one of their disappointments this year. I was kind of saying, heck no, not, not the way Greg Hardy <laughs> right. plays. Tyrone Crawford, even Demarcus Lawrence, the second-year guy at LSU, the way he stepped up, uh, he was a madman in that game. But anyways, you know, looking at the Jets on film and looking at the roster, I was like, dude, this team could really do some damage in the playoffs because of what they present. You have these really nice big-body wide receivers with Marshall and Decker, who set a a franchise record for combined touchdown uh, receptions for uh, wide receivers this season. And then you've got this three-headed monster running back. I mean, Chris Ivory – he actually leads the league in yards after contact. Very physical runner. A lot of people think that's beast mode. He's kind of beast mode on the East Coast. Stephen Ridley right. uh, with Blyle Powell. Good options out of the backfield. Obviously, Patriots fans know Ridley very well. And they've got a solid offensive line. And then defensively, arguably the be- one of the best defensive lines in the league, Cromartie, Revis on the outside. Calvin Pryor steps on the safety. And, and you look at that, you know, Casey Rogers, their D coordinator and Todd Bowles scheme. Man, they're tough. I mean, I, I look at yeah. Other teams who may make it in as far as like Houston and Kansas City uh, and, and even the Steelers with, with as poor as their defense played 
in the first half last week versus Osweiler and the Broncos. And I kind of feel like the Jets could end up 11-5. and five. Now, Granted, they'd have to beat the Patriots this week, which I don't think is going to happen. But even if that was the case, they're going to end up 11-5 and five and lose out the tiebreakers to both the Steelers and the Chiefs. And, you know, they end up you know, sitting on the outside looking in. And they're probably a better team than both of those two teams. And maybe not. And maybe Pittsburgh's still better because of Roethlisberger. But, I mean, still, I think the Jets can be very dangerous if they get a bid. And, and I'll say another thing. It's interesting when you look at the Pro Bowl because we talked about that. Like when you look at the AFC playoff picture versus the NFC, I would say there's four teams that you're kind of like, all right, these teams could win the Super Bowl from the NFC, and I wouldn't be surprised. Like Carolina, Arizona, Green Bay, and uh, Seattle. Like those four, Seattle. would you be surprised if they made it right or won? Yeah, one of those four, absolutely. Yeah, but then you look at the AFC side, and besides the Patriots, I don't know that I feel confident in any other team right now, one, because I don't know their quarterback situation with the Broncos and Bengals. Then you've got the Texans, which who's really giving them a shot, uh, not only because of their quarterback situation, but they just don't seem as competitive considering how bad the AFC South has been. You look at Kansas right. City, and they don't really scare you with anything. They don't have Jamal Charles, obviously, a running back, even though the running game has been solid. Um, I know their defense is good, but I just can't see them putting up a bunch of points on anyone. And then, like I said, with the Steelers, it, it's more a product of the fact that, yeah, they got Big Ben. So I, I know Big Ben can get the job done. I just don't know if their defense can stop anyone. So all of a sudden, is it are the Steelers going to be able to win in a shootout? Uh, I, I don't know. That, that's tough to kind of bet on to make it to the Super Bowl. So I would say right now, if I was a betting man, I'm putting my onus on the NFC, man. And that's, and that's funny enough how the Pro Bowl voting went. You're the four quarterbacks of the four teams that we mentioned for the NFC. And then you've got right. Roethlisberger and Brady on the AFC. So it's kind of just odd that that's how it worked out that way. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll take it even one step further. I think if uh, if you're to look at the teams that still even plausibly have a chance beyond just beyond just where they sit today, I would say you'd, you'd need to have two elements. And I would say the quarterback, as we mentioned, and the defense. Uh, so if you if you wanted to filter that group down even another step, they have the 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 hop high end healthy and that's important leadership, and they play really high end defense. I, and I think it'll really take both. And I think that's why the Steelers are an intriguing topic. But because you know one week they'll play great defense, the Bengals a couple weeks ago. Uh, the next time not so much. And that's and that's and that's their inconsistency what makes you really struggle to completely buy in on them as a potential Super Bowl team. But if you look at a team like the Patriots, obviously their defense is upon playing exceptionally well uh, and, and quite likely will have a full healthy linebacker group here as, as Hightower comes back. Uh, Devin McCourty will be sort of the curveball. If they can get Devin back for the playoffs, that'll be very helpful. But you start looking at some of those other teams. Seattle's defense was pretty average back in October. But all of a sudden, Michael Bennett is one of the most disruptive players in football. He's playing like, you know, just a notch below Khalil Mack off the edge. Like he's he's been really good this year. He's had one of his best years in his career. Uh, and Richard Sherman's back to doing the stuff you're used to seeing. Thomas is playing better in the back. It just looks more cohesive. It looks like how you remember him, basically. Teams aren't scoring like them on them like they used to in this this run of five, six, seven games they've had. Uh, Arizona's who they are, and but they've got the defense that can play the scheme that causes problems, and they got the quarterback. So again, I'm not going to run through the entire NFL, but if you look at those teams that I think would have 
have the best chance in the event that they've got both those, we can talk about them. If they're missing one of the other two, I think probability says they won't be there. I'll hit on one last team. We, we don't have time to go deep into them, but I should at least mention it. Obviously, Arizona and Green Bay play as well this week. That's another sort of obviously playoff implication kind of setup. The one thing I'll be watching for quickly in that game is, is Green Bay willing to go back to the run game? They did. They were able to beat uh, Oakland with a little different approach out there, 130 to 20 a week ago. But Eddie Lacy, after having a well over 100-yard game, kind of a breakthrough, best we've seen from him in a while performance two weeks ago, barely played. You know, v- you know, most of the runs were gun runs, sometimes with Kuhn in the, in the gun using a fullback or either James Starks, you know, with, with more of a pass-catching back kind of role or shotgun draw plays and things like that. I'm interested to see if with McCarthy calling the plays, uh, especially against a team like Arizona that will hand it off over and over and over, especially this young kid, Johnson from UNI, uh, if they're willing to to run the ball. I, I think if, if the Packers want to turn themselves back into a, a pass at 40 times a game and the running game's just more of an afterthought, they'll have a tough time keeping up with the Arizonas and potentially the Seahawks and some of the teams like that on that side of the draw. Yeah, I'm a little bit curious, too, to see how that will end up working out because when you look at the way the playoff standings are at this current moment, Matt, uh, Green Bay would end up playing the Minnesota Vikings uh, for a third time this season, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, it's hard to beat a team twice in the season. It's really hard to beat them three times. Uh, so I'll be curious to see if that ends up being the playoff picture on that side. Uh, obviously, you know, big implications for that game this weekend. Uh, and obviously for the following weekend, because that's when the Vikings would play right. the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and, and we'll have to wait and see how things play out. But I, I do want to ask you one thing in regards to the Odell Beckham Jr. suspension. Do you think his yeah. case closed? He's going to get suspended. It's, it's, or he already did, but he doesn't win the appeal and all that. Or do you think there's any possibility whatsoever that he would get this overturned and would win his appeal? Well, in all honesty, for folks that will listen to this and download the show, and maybe you're listening to this on Sunday morning, maybe you're listening to the Saturday afternoon, maybe Friday, who knows, actually on Christmas. But at the time now, there's been some tweets that potentially Odell is going to win this this appeal, which we won't know. You'll know that. Excuse me. You'll know that fact when when you hear the show. But. Uh, I think the uh, the notion that he could get it overturned, I, I wonder if that might, I don't know. The first thing, I, a lot of the stuff I heard, Jim Miller's uh, an old teammate of mine, the old, old Bears quarterback, was our, our quarterback for a while there, the backup to Tom Brady. Uh, Jimmy was talking about on his show, uh, Move the Chains, I believe, the one with Pat Kerwin on, on XM. He was talking about the Albert Hainsworth situation and was using that sort of an example of the dramatic, you know, like four game suspension. The first one he got for something that was way outside the game, the kick, the scratch, whatever it was. Uh, But the idea that a the NFL didn't even eject the dude in game while it was going on. Good Lord. I mean, that to me was so crazy. Like, uh, that, that okay who doesn't think if it's if it's suspendable it's ejectable I mean those are the same things it's just that you wouldn't have caught it until later that you get suspended for something but they saw it and chose not to eject so I guess that if I'm if I'm Odell and I'm just trying to get off I'm trying to sort of be a free bird here on this this issue I think there's a possibility there's a possibility that 
they didn't do it in the moment. What new information do they have that, that caused him to be suspended? That's probably the angle I take. Now, I don't know if it would win it for you. Uh, and obviously the, the idea that, you know, they went for one is kind of an oddball number because they certainly had the juice to go for more and didn't. Uh, but I think if anything, whether he gets it or not, what it highlights is that I think they screwed it up in the moment because the team, that, to my view, that gets screwed the most by this is the Carolina Panthers. I mean, they're in a playoff hunt run themselves. They're trying to go for history here. Uh, that second half almost lost, and for they almost lost. And and the guy that was the biggest player in that was Odell Beckham Jr. And all of those big plays he had came post suspendable offense, apparently. So uh, whatever, in my view, that the NFL ends up doing, they will have screwed up. <laughs> I, I can't even. I can't, I can't even. Uh, not not like that. Uh, no, you, you. You're probably right. It, 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 seems, it seems like any decision that gets thrown their way, they always end up being reactive instead of proactive. Hence, the league sending out uh, an official letter this week about not carrying any objects outside of uh, what's I guess deemed necessary for a football game. I, I don't know. Maybe like a baseball bat. Uh, considering that, yeah, that whole the uh, yeah, that whole thing. Carolina yeah. Panthers were taken out on the field and all that, which, look, it wasn't the first time the team's used a bat as symbolism for motivation or to symbolize something. I was a part of a team that did it once for a game. We weren't taking it out of the field, swinging it around, but, um, you know, it's been done before, so let's not all of a sudden make it a big deal. Um, it was interesting, though. We, uh, we saw, you know, then some comments came out that maybe Josh Norman was making some homophobic comments towards um, yeah. towards Odell Beckham. And, and you wonder, you know, if, if, you know, that played played any part or would play any part in them possibly overturning the suspension based on whatever private discussions that Odell Beckham Jr. has with Roger right. Goodell, um, which, you know, obviously if it was overturned, given how blatantly obvious it was, it was a cheap shot, how dirty it was, you'd have right. to expect an explanation from Roger Goodell or from Odell Beckham because uh, it just wouldn't make any sense. I mean, this is one of the dirtiest plays I've seen this week. But I will make a case for this. Uh, I'm not sure if you, you heard about David Bruton, who actually broke his fibula. They think for the, hmm. he's a Denver Broncos safety and plays special teams. Broke his fibula in the first quarter of the game. Thought it was just a really deep bruise or something like that. Played through it. Towards the end of the game, there was an offensive lineman. I think his name is Casey Woodard or Woodhead or something like that. He ends okay. up flying across the pile to take a shot at David Bruton, uh, who, was, who was standing around the pile, but it ends the play. Now, the whistle wasn't blown yet. It was, the whistle was blown in the Odell Beckham hit on Josh Norman. It wasn't in this yep. case, but clearly a dirty play. Offensive linemen will try to defend him, saying the whistle wasn't blown. They're taught to clean up around the pile, especially those defensive backs who stand around and take cheap shots at the end of plays. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, so, that play was one of the dirtiest ones of the weekend as well. Yet you don't hmm. see anyone talking about it. You don't see any penalty or anything happening right now uh, just because it was maybe, maybe two players who aren't as well-known uh, in the league as, as far as an offensive lineman for the, for the Pittsburgh Steelers and a defensive safety and special team star for the Denver Broncos. So it's interesting to me how everything's been made about this Odell Beckham-Josh Norman's fight when there's other dirty plays going on that should be uh, punished just as much, if not more, based on what's happened. Well, dude, you know me. I'm not hot sports take guy, but I'm going to do it right now. So <laughs> this is – I'm not – I'm past the point where I feel like any of these things are conspiratorial. 
I think there's some hard and fast sort of patterns of behavior that tell you this league does not follow their own rules. And that's, and that's, that's really, we, we learned uh, on Monday, or excuse me, on Tuesday, was it? No, I'm sorry. I believe it was Wednesday morning uh, that Dean Blandino had came out and made comments uh, about the Odell Beckham junior play and revealed that they had had headset communication with the on the field staff. Blandino claims that he had told them, told the officials that work in the game, that what he was seeing was ejectable. And this is prior to them having other opportunities to eject them. In other words, and then in postgame, Blandino says, what I saw should have resulted in an ejection. Now, he can't call the ejection from New York. He can simply remind them, apparently. But they've been bragging on this notion that, you know, you'd now have New York there to make sure the right thing got done. So he now says in review, he absolutely should have been ejected. He absolutely now should be suspended. Yet the staff who's there or the, the refs are there, they're working the game. They don't eject them. Now, here's my may sound controversial or, or conspiratorial, but I think is, is a hard and fast thing. I think if you were to simply look at Twitter or you're simply New York and you're, you're, you're into sort of what people are, are watching and captivated by, Norman and Odell Beckham Jr. was the most hit upon, trending, popular thing in the world at the time. Everyone was tweeting about it. Everyone was talking about it. The NFL weather balloons all the time. That's how they did Deflategate. They would just, they would wait and find out what they thought the fan was reaction and they would come back, you know, they'd, they'd drop a little statement to see how reaction would be. And then the punishment would come out a week later and it would be written, written in accordance with what they learned from that little weather balloon. It's just, it's just how they do it. They, they take the temperature of the public and they roll with it. They don't follow the rules. That's what's always drove, drove me nuts. I have a feeling and it feels like that was a very good TV. It was captivating. It was great to watch. It looks to me like no way in hell you're taking that game out. We'll just suspend them tomorrow. Now, I'm pissed about that. Say if, say if Caroline had lost, it would have been on an Odell Beckham touchdown or something along those lines. I think it's egregious. I think the NFL and their inability to be consistent week to week just completely drives me nuts. It's why when they talk about it, gain, integrity of the game and all that nonsense, it's just it's a, it's a perpetual eye roll for me. I don't believe it. I don't buy it, and I just think there's too much evidence to the contrary. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that. And, and it's funny, the whole uh, emphasis of, of, or I guess, change as far as officiating goes as we work towards the playoffs is Dean Blandino being more of a part uh, of, of monitoring their games and so forth. But from yeah. my discussions with guys who are in the know, like a, a Mike Ferreira, it's not going to have a huge effect on anything. Supposedly, <laughs> all he's going to do is just reassure the officials of certain rules, certain points of emphasis, and uh, like he did in this particular case with the, with the Giants and Jets, or excuse me, the Giants and, and the Panthers and, and Beckham and, and Norman, remind them that, for example, they could be ejected for those offenses or remind them of those sorts of right. things. Uh, but he's not going to tell them how to do their job. And I think people think that maybe that would help make things more consistent, but it's not. Uh, you just hope that the best crew is going to do a better job. I think that, see, and this is when they screw up punishment because the whole idea of game integrity and safety and all that stuff, if that's, if you're really into it, it is that it, you can't allow something that you say is egregious affect outcomes. That's, that's the most important part. Or if you felt that, you know, there was some safety issue, say in the event that Odell Beckham Jr. had done this, right? He had thrown a punch as we saw him do, or he did the spearing thing where he's diving at the, the side of the guy's head with his, with his helmet after a play, right? We saw that. Now, imagine if you're, 
litigious if by nature and you're you're Norman and say that play had happened a couple times, right? And they chose not to eject and it's clear that they should have or it's it's enough that they would suspend him about it the next morning. What if after not ejecting him after he'd done that twice, he does dive through the back of his knee after a play or he does hit him in the back of the head and cause a concussion? Imagine if that had happened. So that's why the importance of actually enacting your rule in the moment and not, hey, we'll handle it tomorrow. This is really fucking entertaining. Excuse me. <laughs> you can't you can't do that. And that's why I think they've always been so full of shit. I, I think when when they didn't enact it in the moment, you <laughs> You don't, you don't get protected by a letter. Are you just trusting now, huh? Is that, is that what happens? <laughs> yes, shit comes out. It does. It does. But the point of it is, it, it, player safety is about doing something that actually protects you, if, if you really believe in that stuff. Nobody gets protected by a letter on Monday. And the, the notion of game integrity is that if something's wrong, you don't allow it to affect the outcome. You hit on both there. <laughs> you, you allowed it to affect the outcome, and no one got protected. It's stupid. It's just stupid, and it, it's, it, it comes from dishonest people, and you know how I feel now. All right. Hey, that was the show. So, Brady, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Have a wonderful week. <laughs> you too, buddy, man. As always, it's a pleasure. I, I, I always look forward to these conversations with you on a weekly basis. Yeah, occasionally we get off the rails, but uh, it's been a really fun year, and we still got several weeks to go. All right, uh, all the best to you and the family. Take care, buddy. All righty, that's all we have for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening to the Football by Football podcast. As always, the FBF podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn radio app. For daily insightful stuff from guys like Brady, myself, and many other writers, Former players all, make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and give us a follow if on Twitter at FBBYF. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.